Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville, 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVMFM in Asheville, and Robin Collier for managing KCEI in Taos, New Mexico. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And I'd like to also point out that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you'd like to improve your writing chops, you can always go to imaginativestorm.com for more on that. So today I am in the field, I am in Taos, New Mexico, with someone I just met. My good friend Bill Curry rang me up and said, I have a friend from, from the West Coast. Her name is Nina Franacek. She works in the creative business, in the acting business, in the entertainment business, in the radio business. I hear she has quite a range. We just met each other, so I'm going to find out along with you. So Nina, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you for having me. Very nice to meet you. It's my pleasure as well. So here you are. Bill called me and said, I must meet you. And he told me that you were involved in the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. And you've been there for a long time. That's how you've earned your living, what you've done in your, in your life for your passion as well as your work. So tell us a bit about how you are engaging your creative work now that you've moved through your career and that you've experienced all of the variations on the the entertainment business that you have. I've read a bit and I know you do have a range so I'm going to let you fill us in on how that works for you now. I go back a little bit. I am originally from Berlin, West Berlin, when I was born in 1963. That's when John F. Kennedy was in Berlin and said, I, ich bin ein Berliner, which is actually correct English, because always people think that that's something to eat, yeah? But he said it right. And that's when I was born to two artists who were painting, like Jackson Pollock, who been revolting maybe against their parents. It was that strange town in the middle of actually East Germany, a town that was West Berlin, but it was surrounded by a wall, which on our side we sprayed with colors and graffiti and painters, you know, painted on it. And then on the other side, we had soldiers. We had a death stripe with mines. And when people from the former East Germany wanted to escape, which a lot of tried to, they were shot by their own people. That's how I grew up, in a very eclectic town of artists. Also, West Berlin was very interesting for a lot of young men because you didn't need to go to the military. And it was sponsored because they wanted to keep that city alive. Um, so if you had a film production or art foundations were sponsored. So that was the beginning for me to live kind of like with with two already pretty free spirits in kind of an artist commune. When you were growing up, did you understand 
the political aspects of the situation you were in with the East and the West? Or was that just what life was like as a child? We witnessed it. We understood that people who flee the other Germany are shot. So there was that reality. But I think there's also a part in us where we just lived with it. And on our side, there was so much creativity and we make jokes about it. You know, like, oh, you can't get lost. So my mom always got lost, been in the woods during Christmas. And we always said, oh, mom's not a problem. We will hit the wall and then we just walk until we find a street and go home again. And when I was a teenager, there were parts, especially f from the Western side towards the wall, there was a lot of nature. So we loved it. It was wild. There were animals and nature. We did car races at the wall, and knowing that these GDR soldiers in their towers had to follow us with their lights. So we basically played the movies because they've been following us, but they couldn't shoot us because we were from the West. We were the capitalists, we've been the West Germans. So we loved doing that stuff. And also, we were allowed as West Germans or West Berliners to go to the East. It felt a little bit like being very rich because our money had more value. So we're kids or teenagers, so we can buy food, we can buy things that some of the people in the former GDR couldn't buy. And then we made stupid jokes at the, at the border, like, oh yeah, we have whatever, a body in the trunk of our car. They stopped us, they searched us, but it was more a game. You didn't take it too serious in that time. And yet when you went across to the East mm -hmm. as the Westerners, mm -hmm. the affluent Westerners, were you aware of the contrast? Were you aware of how people saw you? Did you see that as something that was serious? Or as a child, it was just what you did? No, I learned from early on that they are communists. When I was going to school, we also had communist teachers. Young people in my age had uniforms on, the guys had long hair, they had short hair, um, although that's not some of the artists in the former GDR also long hair. No, I remember even once going over there and then someone passed us and said, today is the day of the stupid ones, meaning us. Their ideology was like, we are the bad ones, we are the former fascists. The good thing about having a divided Germany, we try to be very good Americans or Westerners and they try to be very good Russians because we had a past and they basically said, oh, all the Nazis are over there in the West and they became really good communists now. Now, very clearly there was a difference. Because of my parents being artists in that time, they had friends over there. And also imagine it's like Korea today Family's been split. I mean, they, they, they built this wall in the middle of the night and then whole family's been split. So people had relatives there and we know artists there. And I actually admired a lot of these artists and filmmakers and writers. Some of them were able to go to the West, show their movies or read their books or show their art. But I knew that they were not allowed to say everything that they may want to do say. In many ways, there were so much more interesting artists. Their art had something to do with letting the people know what else is there, because there was a certain propaganda they had to follow, but also, as any artist, they questioned some of the things. Did you have an understanding of communism when you were going 
across. And the reason I'm asking is because now we hear that term. Oh, this one's communist, that's communist. So it's used as a, as a negative, it's a slang, it's barb thrown at somebody. What was communism like as you understood it when you were visiting the East? And how would it be different than maybe people would understand it today? I think at that time, as, it, as uh, you know, still being a teenager or a young adult, I saw pictures of the camps and what obviously my grandparents had done in school when I was 12 years old. So I was completely shocked. I did not understand who are these people, yeah? This is your grandfather? Who did this? These pictures were so awful. And then understanding that people like Bertolt Brecht, the theater director and writer, that they had tried to form another country. It's not that I idealized it, but they tried to have everyone equal. Women had same rights like men. In fact, maybe it's good what they're doing. It was different. We, we could see they didn't have a lot of money, like in the West. We grew up like in America with jeans and with money and Coca-Cola and whatnot, and Marlboros in this time. And it was colorful. When you went to the former East or East Berlin, it still looked like after the war. They didn't even have the money to cover up all the bullets and the, you know, that were still in buildings. So um, it was gray. It, it, Nina Hagen was a, a very famous punk singer that came from the East to the West. And one of her songs said, oh, it's so colorful here, when she came over. Two different systems. When the war fall after the reunification, and we learned how awful the Stasi had been, meaning how much they spied on people, the files came out, meaning every person had a file. And you, the people went there, and you could read on the file that your husband talked to the Stasi about you, that your best friend talked to the Stasi, that you could read how they tried to make you crazy, that was then a different truth that came out, which was really, really shocking. And the Stasi, the secret police, mm -hmm. had all these dossiers and all the people. What were the rank-and-file Stasi officers like? Were they very stiff and nasty, or were they ordinary people just doing bureaucratic work? The later. I even made a movie with Connie Balta, a German director. The title is Twelve Means I Love You, which is the real story of a real Stasi officer. The woman, they said that she had West contact, more liberal meaning more free. So they put her in prison and he was the Stasi officer through horrible stuff. But they fall in love during these interviews. And after the reunification, they actually met again he divorced and they became a couple, and there's a book about them. When we made this TV movie about this couple, I was in shock, because the guy that you could think is this horrible, uh, general-like person, he looked a little like the French actress Brigitte Bardot. He was very feminine, and he wanted to do something with people and really liked people. So that's why he became a Stasi guy. And she, where you think, oh, this is this free young woman with her husband, and they even had kind of an open relationship, which was in, in these times, you know, not normal. 
she was kind of like a tough cookie, yeah? She was much more intellectual and demanding. And even to see them together, she was the one constantly telling him, aren't you aware of what you did? Can't you see the consequences of your actions? But she was on him. It was interesting to see that. We have these ideas why people do things. To understand, when you live in a certain system, we all want to be good people. We all want to thrive. We all want a house and we want education for the kids and all these things. So we follow the system. So for them, we had all of this horrible past. Everyone wanted to be a good communist. And then you do what they wanted you to do in order to survive, thrive, however that looked like. And the same in West Germany. We all wanted to be little Americans. America was this big brother and we all wanted to be like Americans. We all watched American movies and we've been very much influenced by the American way of life. When the wall fell and people came together, do you remember what kind of tensions existed when the two systems tried to intermingle? For me at this time, I was 23 when the wall fall and I was shooting a movie in Portugal which was actually my first international production, a big movie by Rebecca Horn with Donald Sutherland, Geraldine Chaplin, with Taylor Mead, who was an actor and close to Andy Warhol, a big production. And we were even thinking about stopping it and going to Berlin because, you know, there was this big thing happening. But at that time already, I knew a lot. So not only have I had a lot of friends who have been artists from the East, but also I knew a lot of people who had escaped from the East. I knew people who had been in prison just because they said the wrong thing. I knew filmmakers from the former GDR. So I knew already that it was not so rosy. I remember when we've been on set, we'd been discussing it, celebrating it, but our makeup team, They've been from the East. They both had escaped. Escaping meant you put yourself in a certain car that was built in a way that you could hide a person in there. But if they would have found you, you end up in prison for life. People try to swim through the Baltic Sea. A lot of people died doing that. You leave everything behind you. At that time, they knew they may never see their parents again. They never see any family again. And you leave with the clothes on your body. And then you came to the West in a completely different system that you don't understand, and you get a couple of Deutschmarks in that time, and then you're off. I knew a lot of people who had escaped, and they saw what would come. And they basically said, Nina, it's going to be awful, because they all want to come now, and they all want the goodies. Like, they want the cars and the, the washing machines and the TV. It's a little bit like the Janis Joplin song, yeah? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me, you know, eight-color TV, Mercedes-Benz. And so, in a way, we just said, yeah, come over, people. We give you credit cards, because then you can get all these things. You will adapt to our system. And uh, Heiner Müller is a German writer who said in that time there was a war that no one is aware of. Because instead of fusing and taking things that they had a wonderful kindergarten system or the, the way how the, the rights of the woman or, you know, other things. We, the capitalists, made a major win. 
we basically went in there and said, you're going to drink our Coca-Cola, not your your Coca-Cola that tastes very bad. And we're going to sell us your product. So we West people became very, very rich because we rebuilt the East now the way we wanted it. You were there. You saw all of this. You also, at the same time, were getting some traction in the entertainment business, mm -hmm. the acting business, moving in the direction of filmmaking. As a German artist, entering the world of imagery, the world of the movies, how were you able to bring the deeper understanding of all of this tension into the arena with the American artist? How did that blend for you? And did you have a bigger objective than, say, other people? in terms of how you wanted to express your art and what you wanted to do, and maybe even still to this day? Uh, I am an observer often, and it was really interesting for me to observe change. And I'm an observer of human behavior. And from the get-go, I think because of the past of Germany, and my father's mother is Jewish and died in a camp, so I had that on one hand, the, the suffering and the awareness of what these kind of wars do to people and especially civilians, what they do to each other. And then I have a mother who was actually born uh, on September 1st, 1939, which is the beginning of the Second World War. And the mother called the father to say, it's coming, it's coming, meaning the baby. And he said, I know, I know, and went into the war. And he was a general who was 12 years in Siberia in a camp. So she was 15, I think, when she met her father, who came out of a, also a, another work camp, and had survived that. So as a child, my questions were a lot, what do people do to each other? What are all these different systems we try to create, you know, how we live? And what does that do to people? And also being a generation, seeing collapse. I saw the GDR collapsing, something we never thought, that the wall would come down. And then my profession uh, as a film actor especially brought me pretty much around the world. So then a couple of years later in South Africa and see that collapsing. And so again, that's the same kind of quality of chaos that starts, which I, on the other hand, also think is often very good and interesting because we have to come together and find something new. As human beings, we always want to do the old again, yeah? Because that seems familiar, although it didn't work out, right? So me coming to the United States, I'm observing, and when I'm in a new place, I see better, because it's new. Like the first thing I saw when I came to California was that people don't see Mexicans, that they are not existent. I think there's a person in the room People behave like they're furniture. So they've been invisible people. You know, you see these things, or I could see how different African-Americans were here. Obviously, society did to them, uh, just by their behavior, not even by, you know, knowing everything about the, the history and how different my African friends are. That's the source that I feed on when I travel or when I'm in different countries to observe and to embody that as an actor or bring that into stories I want to tell. So when you entered the business, did you enter it as an actor or as someone who wanted to make films or a little bit of both? 
as an actor, I, since my parents been painters of fine art, I observed and learned a lot about the scene. And I could see as a child already that they were very talented people and not so talented ones, but that the business often can't really see what real art is. So some people I could see become very, very famous, and the other one is still a cab driver, although he's maybe the better artist. I think I analyzed or could see that world, and I thought, I don't want to be a painter. I'm an artist, but I don't want to be a painter. And I thought, which was maybe very naive, but the actors, at least, have to learn a little bit about psychology and are maybe a little bit better people. So I was interested in that, and I had started dancing and was always interested in other cultures. I had a, I was very fascinated by Bhutto dance and learned that and had a Korean teacher and learned Korean fan dance and stuff like that. And then met Samuel Beckett in Berlin. And I think because my father expressed himself through painting, but was completely shut down emotionally. And when I saw Beckett's plays, I understood my father understood the pain behind that silence that he had and that sadness that was there. And uh, Walter Asmus was the assistant for uh, Beckett. And he was also a, an acting teacher uh, at, the, at the conservatory, the University of Music and Theater in Hanover. And I wanted to learn from him. And then there was an American there who looked like Charles Bukowski. He came out of St. Quentin, Rick Klutschi. He was in Berlin on a stipend, DAAD, German-American Exchange Cultural Program. He was obviously there as a writer and theater uh, man. And I saw his play. I had never seen something like that. There have been GIs on stage, and we've been sitting as, as the audience in the middle of that bar, and it was so realistic. I've ne never seen this kind of realistic theater. And I learned that he had been in St. Quentin. He had done a kidnapping when he was 18. And because he was a minor, it did not end up with a death sentence. And the San Francisco Mime Troupe had brought Waiting for Godot into the prison. And the prisoners understood what that was about. So Rick Lucci changed and became a theater man in prison. And he was going to meet Samuel Beckett. Samuel had heard about him. And all that happened in Berlin. I was 15 years old when I was meeting all these people. I was 16. And I came home and I said, this is what I want to do. And although my father, both of my parents were painters, my father said, no, 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 you're going to finish school. You need an MFA at least that you can make, you know, um, study. But that was my influence, and I met Rick later and never studied with Walter. We did something else much later because he then went with Rick on a huge tour through the United States when I was at the conservatory. But that was the influence. And I think what I saw there is how theater can change people, can give you an experience that you haven't had before with others that you then can share in a discussion after it. And uh, that was so powerful for me. And I studied in that time ethnology so and shamanism and said to my teacher, Ivan from Russia, uh, I want to do what you're talking about. Ivan was this tall Russian guy who selected all the 
the young, beautiful students, the girls, to go with him to Russia to meet the shaman. But I, I said, I want to do that, what they're doing. I want to understand how strong is the, our brain, or the capacity of the brain, and is that possible to leave your body or to, to be in these different spheres, or what is that, what medicine man or show, what is that? And had the fortune to work with teachers, I would maybe even call it spiritual experiences, that are transformative not only for me, but when you write or, or work from that place are very transformative for an audience. So when you started to enter the acting arena with this goal in mind of more mysticism, mm -hmm. shamanistic experiences, transcending oneself, were you resistant to that? Were you able to flow with it? And would you say that that ability to allow yourself to go there would be one of the primary talents an actor needs in order to really take that craft to the level of, of magnificence? What I learned was classical exercises and then there are all these different teachers, Stanislavski School and Zella Adler, which is a little bit different in Germany or what Bertolt Brecht did. So you use your imagination. And then the method acting went very close with psychology at that time that you use former experiences in your life that been traumatic, that you remember uh, on a sensory level. So I studied all of that, that was interesting, but there was a problem with, with my voice. And they did these different breathing exercises, and I always failed, and I was told that I need to work on that harder because I was playing on, on huge theaters, 2,000 seats, so people need to hear me. And that was when we then worked with Cislak. He was a student of Grotowski. And they incorporated these new things. There was a form of body work. He had chosen some, you could say, some yoga elements, but they've been in movement. And he taught us that when you're together in a group, you should keep that concentration and you feed off the other people. And then we understood after a time, like an athlete, if you want to run on your own with willpower, but there was some moment where the group and the concentration you all have together keeps the energy up. And they also told us if you lose the connection, you need to get out because you bring the group energy down. And then they did stuff like out in the snow and for hours. And I learned movements there and obviously a form of breathing and a form of being able to root my body so much deeper and find my voice. Voice teachers came back and said, you're using muscles that are not allowed to be used. And then later found the natural way and it was the right thing. So what I try to say here is we learn different techniques. That's the technique to play piano. That's the technique to do some writing. In the forms that holistically involve the whole human and also the community in it by creating together, these were always the things or the experiences where I made very deep experiences. And as you progressed in your acting, you moved also into directing and other forms as well, bringing all of this knowledge. You talked about your original interest was psychological. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a bit more about 
what you've learned around how the psychology works in respect to an actor developing a character or a human being just existing as a character that's already there developed for that particular person. There are all these techniques where you remember something that you experience. The death of the cat. I remember how I found the cat and then the emotions are coming again. I was very bored with that because reproducing traumatic memories of mine, I'm not experiencing something new. And then Michael Chekhov does already exercises where I could say you reach some other realm and spiritual realm. I, I was really interested in that. Then I realized you can approach acting from the inside or from the outside. Sometimes when writing is really, really good and you really become a channel for it, they say you have to walk in the moccasins of someone else to understand them. Where I had moments where it just came over, I understood the whole thinking, the whole psychology of the person. Then I had uh, a, a big experience, which was really difficult for me, which is actually recently I played a lead in a cinematic video game, a role that I first didn't want to take because it is a Nazi and she's a commander of a concentration camp. And I tried with all my knowledge to approach this role and I couldn't. I realized that the knowledge doesn't help me to understand how someone like her who is the narcissist and someone who likes to kill others, where to find that in me. I could understand that if you heard my nephews or someone who's really close to me, I could, in anger, out of revenge, do something to you. But I couldn't find the psychopathic, yeah? I couldn't find it. And then there was a horrible scene that I had to do. I will say that. I'm throwing a baby against a wall. And I couldn't find how you can do something like that. So now I used my imagination for the reality of the scene and just did the action. And after that, I could feel how a person who is that psychopathic feels. It was a godlike feeling. Because now I did the worst that you can imagine, and I'm not punished. So it was between me and God, or it gave me a rush, like a cocaine rush or some highness, like high, being high, and wanting more of that, wanting to do more evil. And then understood at that moment that kind of evil or hunger, and when you feed this with an ideology, that you feel really good about yourself. Sometimes we think, oh, this is a bad person. They must feel bad. But I experience, no, you don't feel bad. You feel special. You feel superior. And I understood even on a deeper level what had happened in my country or what my ancestors had lived through. I was always interested in psychology, and I think as an actor, you need to go with the current psychology, yeah? So if you learn from Stanislavski, he ended with Freud. It was Strasbourg. There was elements of Jung in there, but then he died. So now we have evolved with our knowledge of the capacity of the human brain and PTSD and all these things. And in the late 90s, there was a teacher in Germany that was questionable, but he came up with something called family constellation work. It has nothing to do with astrology. People said, oh, my relationship problems have something to do with my Nazi uncle or whatever. But I went to see what they're doing. And there was a group of people and someone had a problem. It could be money, it could be relationships, or, or he had a disease. 
the facilitator asks that person, choose someone for yourself. Choose two other people who represent your mother and your father or this other third guy, which was a dead soldier, but the mother still loved this guy. And there were dynamics that I saw. And I started to understand more and more, first of all, how traumatic this Nazi time had been for everyone involved, for the children of perpetrators, as well as for the children of victims. I could also see here that they have, in the next generations, the same problems. In this constellation work, we could see now that children of former perpetrators had the same symptoms like also the survivors, their next generation had the same symptoms. There was also this phenomenon that someone else, this representative, can feel that stuff, which is not explained. We, we don't know yet how that works. But I got really interested in it because people had immediate emotions. You put someone in a certain position and they start crying or they... And I think, man, I, it takes a lot of time to get my actors, you know, when I was directing, to have that emotional breakdown. And sometimes also I could see how an actor is in the way to be their channel. They're full of their own stuff. And I said, no, but that's not the character. Like I had a girl, she was in a Strindberg play. She's supposed to love both men. The whole play, it's called Playing with Fire. It's a little bit like Sophie's Choice. She loves both, but the society doesn't allow that. You can only have one husband. But the actress fall during the play over and over again into hating men. And I said, you can't do that. And we're opening in a week. Romeo loves Juliet. You can't play Romeo hates Juliet. Can't do this. But she couldn't. And then I started that family constellation work, and she immediately understood so it was not her knowledge and where she was, and I did not need to talk to her about psychology and what love is. Or, no, she felt it in her body. She looked at these two men and realized both. She can't live without both of them. So if in the play it's demanded that she needs to let go of one, it was really painful. And then we started experimenting with that method and used it for creativity. We used it for creating film scripts. We used it for healing, but also for an actor to be really open as a channel for the author or for the play. And then even saw that you can use this method outside of ancestry stuff, but you could even look, where could the money come from my next film? Is this a story that the collective wants to hear? Because somehow we step into a collective field when we do this work where we can access this knowledge. So that's a tool that I use. You mentioned when you played the, recently played the Nazi mm -hmm. guard, evil. Mm -hmm. Now that you've spent so much time working creatively in and out of all of these scenarios, deep understanding of psychology. What is your view of evil? How do you define it? Do you believe it exists? And if so, what does it look like in your mind? When we feel as victim, we justify our anger. When you feel victimized or when you come from being a victim, you will be very dangerous for other people. So if I'm a victim as a woman, I can justify that men are really bad and that I need to punish them. 
when I see victim for myself or I see it in others, it's very important to step out of that and stand into my uniqueness, into my strength. Feeling like a victim makes you really angry. And then with the right ideology behind it, it's very powerful and you're going to destroy a lot of people. That's what I see. And being righteous for this and this cause, this needs to happen. I know this needs to happen. So I'm willing to do everything, even sacrifice myself for that cause. Usually, and that maybe sounds strange, but everyone who wants to better the world, there's a tendency that I will become evil for some people. So there's something about judging. When I judge, when it's me against the others, and then if it's also very urgent and I have to better that world, then we become dangerous. The motivation to better the world is there, it seems like, because I hear people talk about it all the time. Mm -hmm. I want to make the world better. My passion is to make the world better. What's the contrast to that? I want to do blank. How do I avoid falling into that trap that has the potential evil or the doing bad part of it when I say I want to make the world better? Self-love and acceptance. So I went to Auschwitz. For me, I had a lot of also spiritual teachers. I was in the Zen temple and I was always a big interest in spirituality. But because of the past and what happened to my grandmother and the human experiences that my father had, there was like no God. And being in Auschwitz, which is also interesting, it's a very spiritual place because a lot of people are meditating and a lot of people come there. I realized, luckily, and I was, I think, 36, 37 at that time, I had learned about myself. So in the moment I objectify a person, I become evil which is very easy. There is a highway called the 405 in Los Angeles with horrible traffic. I become a racist and whatever because I will not be in time on my place. And there's this other idiot who's not able to drive. So immediately he's my enemy. So I can be evil. In my times when I was most insecure, you could have given me an ideology or something that makes me feel more beautiful or something. Definitely... You can influence me. I can be angry at someone. I can be prideful. So when I was in Auschwitz, I understood it was man-made. Man-made, not God-made. And we objectified people and said they are like cattle. Because what they did there is what we do here with cattle. That's the same thing. You use this person in every way. Horrible. But it was man-made. And I also could see that there's that in the Nuremberg process, they've all been on cocaine, so drugs do something to our brains. I could have been anyone. I can't judge. I don't know what I would do in a certain situation. So as an actor, we do improvisation. And there is maybe a moment, because there I can improvise situations like that, where I become completely selfish just to save my own life. So when I'm in fear... Most dangerous I am when I'm in fear because I'm going to protect myself. I may go with a knife to my door because I think someone bad is coming. Yeah? And I also experience when I'm in fear, I make very stupid decisions. When I'm in devastation, when I'm desperate, I make very, very stupid decisions. And usually can hurt someone else because my perception will be very narrow. 
when I'm at peace, when I'm complete, when I'm in acceptance about myself, I see me in you. I can be bad, I can have a bad day, I can be very narrow-minded, I can be all of that. And I don't know in certain situations how selfish can I be. So who am I to judge? You gave me an insight that I haven't had before when I asked you about evil. In my imagination, evil was the big sign on the hill, evil. But as you spoke, I realized evil is small, incremental, like all the other little things, like honesty is not some big, I'm honest. It's just honest in the moment. So evil existing in the frame that you've offered gives me an easier way to understand what it is and to think, okay, yes, I can see how this could exist. Before, thinking big, 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 but small, small, small. And the small over a long period of time equals momentum that can really be destructive. You can say this person is evil, but often that person thinks it does something good. Mm -hmm. see, I'm here in Taos, New Mexico right now, and you see everything that happened here. You see the Pueblo and the natives and the Spanish who came and then the Anglos who came. These Spanish men didn't think they were evil. They thought these wild people don't have God, so they have to bring them something. So there's the righteousness, there's the, there's the purity here, this country, like, where sexuality, that was dirty. So there's a naked person or something, so that's dirty. The person can see that they project that on them, but here they want to change it. I want to change someone else. Instead of seeing, even in our differences, or you are being a man and I'm a woman, there are so many similarities. We tend to look for the differences, and we're so afraid of this other but there are so many similarities. And when we see these, then we are all one. But we can become these other things. And I think every religion knows that. It's greed, it's jealousy. But a lot has to do with low self-esteem or not loving ourselves. When I love myself, when I'm content, I don't need a fight, you. I can let someone pass me by. I'm generous, I'm grateful. But when I'm tense, when I'm coming from lack in any way, I need to do something. I have an enemy, and I may need to rob you because you're rich, and I need to take money from you because I'm poor, and then I make you something. I don't see the human in you or the being in you. Nina, we are getting very, very close to the top of our time together, top of our hour together. So as, as we close, would you reflect just a bit on just a little more on self-love as a way of going out. I would start with self-awareness and self-knowledge. So I think when I was young, I tried to be someone. I wanted to project a certain image. I think it's so important to understand our weaknesses and our strengths. I have close friends that are honest with me, or we have a pact. We call each other out on our stuff. Practically, it's good to meditate for me because I can see my thoughts and don't act on them and I can reflect on them. It's being an acceptance more about myself 
instead of also trying to change me and be constantly better, but to see what I'm doing and be okay with that. And just be grateful for the little things. I think something is when I shift my concentration to appreciation or gratefulness, I see the abundance in my life. When I'm too much out there, and especially in the world of social media and other things, I get so much information about things that I can't change. I can't change the situation in Ukraine right now. Yeah, I get wrapped up in that. Or the successes or failures of others. So I think the time, in a time where we're distracted so quickly, is really important to concentrate on the here and now and our bodies. Being in our bodies, not in our heads, with your feet on the ground and feel the ground and be in nature. Because also nature has, for all of us, this effect to our brain, whether you walk on a beach or in the woods, it calms us down and it gives us a feeling of oneness. When the wind comes in a certain moment, when we see a sunset, we become one with that. And I think this is the most precious in these times where we're so bombarded with information that we need that more and more in order to then select what information I want to see, how do I want to react to it, can I react to it, that clarity. So it's more peaceful, being peaceful, and there is the love, I think. Nina, thank you for taking the time out of your day to be with us on Twice Five Miles Radio. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciated your questions and that we talked about all these things. And I imagine we could go on for more and more time, but we have come to the end of this show. So once again, thank you very much. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Nina Franicek. When I asked Nina about evil, I was surprised she came at it with an answer that was a more lowercase answer rather than evil like the big mountain that you have to climb or evil like it's something that permeates everything or could permeate everything. She brought it down to a smaller idea. And when she was talking about it, I was intrigued as I started to think about how the small, tiny little things can add up over time. And I changed the way I thought about evil as Nina was talking. You may have had the same experience I did when you listened to her description of how people we might consider evil don't think of themselves as evil at all. They think of themselves as making a better world, contributing something, and when they have a large group of followers responding to whatever they're saying, it justifies their actions more and more. So one group views something as evil, the other group views it as good. And on it goes, and you can go back through the history of humanity, and you see this all the time. In his book, Evil, Inside Human Violence and Cruelty, Roy F. Baumaster opens with a story that illustrates these two different perceptions. What's evil? What's good? What's bad? Who's a perpetrator? Who's a victim? Here's the story. Picture a busy Friday afternoon at a large airport, say like Atlanta. A businesswoman in her mid-forties darts into a Chick-fil-A, which is just across from her gate. She orders some fries and a chicken sandwich. 
The fries come in their own bag, and the chicken sandwich is wrapped in its own paper. So she heads for the nearest table. Her mind is on her work. She's hungry. She wants to get home. She has a long trip ahead of her. A lot going on in her head as she hurries to the table and sits down beside a man reading a book. The man's in his fifties. And she spreads out some of her work and gets her food ready and settles into a window of 10 or 15 minutes before she has to get in line to board her airplane. She's eating her sandwich, reviewing her notes, and reaching over into the bag of fries and taking the fries and eating the fries. Pretty soon, she notices the man sitting next to her is glaring at her, ominously looking at her in an angry sort of way for no reason at all. She's just minding her business, having her lunch, getting ready to catch the plane. And yet this guy is really staring her down. And as he stares her down, he reaches into the bag of fries and takes three or four fries and puts them in his mouth as he's looking at her. And she, a bit undone, reaches into the bag as well and takes some of the fries out and puts them in her mouth. The man then reaches out, takes the bag of fries, and moves them over far enough so that she can't reach and eat the fries anymore, and the fries now belong to him, not her. She feels a great deal of tension, but there's not much she can do about it, and while she's sitting there trying to collect herself, she hears an announcement for her plane, so she gathers up her material along with her sandwich. She leaves the fries behind, and she gets out of there as fast as she can. The man stares at her as she leaves the table. She gets to her gate, she gets in line, and as she's standing in line, she's starting to organize her material. So she opens her small carry-on bag where she keeps her computer and other items, and as she's putting her legal pad into her carry-on bag, she notices her bag of french fries in the carry-on bag. That's when she realizes because she was in such a hurry and had so much on her mind when she picked up her food, she had put the french fries in her carry-on bag in order to be able to juggle everything she needed to get to the table. If you've ever been in a busy airport or in a busy situation and you've been in a hurry, you know how easy it is to slip up like that. You'll do something and then you forget about it because you're busy thinking about something else. So that was her situation, innocent as it could be. So when she sat down at the table, in a hurry, knowing she had a limited amount of time, it's maybe understandable that she would forget that she'd put her fries in her carry-on bag. And with that in mind, it's easy to understand how in her hurry she might think the fries that were on the table were her fries and not the fellow sitting next to her, when in fact the fries belong to the fellow sitting next to her. Honest mistake on her part, and an honest response on the part of the fellow who was minding his business, reading his book, eating his fries. He didn't understand what was motivating her, nor did she understand what was motivating him. So here you have two innocent people thinking some kind of nefarious spirit had moved across the table and caused all this conflict, when in fact there was an explanation for it, but neither of the people knew what the explanation was because nobody knew where her french fries were hiding. 
So when I first read that story, I sided with the woman in a hurry to get her airplane, and I thought the man sitting next to her was the evil guy, the perpetrator, doing something he shouldn't be doing, when in fact both participants were doing nothing wrong at all. They were both minding their own business. These kind of conflicts happen all the time between people. We misunderstand each other. We have perceptions that maybe are not accurate or they're accurate for us, but they're not accurate in the grander scheme of things. If the woman had realized her fries were in her carry-on bag, no problem would have existed. Two people in an airport catching a little bit of relaxation before they go on their way. So Baumaster offers this story to start his book titled Evil Inside Human Violence and Creativity as a way of illustrating how difficult it is to understand what we call evil. Just like Nina was telling us, it's small. Start small. Small bag of french fries hidden in a carry-on bag, forgotten about, creates a tension that the outside observer might think had some evil in it when in fact it was just an ordinary set of circumstances that had misunderstanding in it rather than evil. So in that scenario, when the woman discovered her french fries in her carry-on bag, her perception of the entire situation changed. On the other hand, the fellow sitting at the table with his book and his french fries watching the woman run off to the gate his perception didn't change because he had no idea she had made a mistake with her french fries. So even after the story ends, the man still tells a story that is very different than the story that the woman would tell. So here we are back to Nina's point. Evil and how we perceive the world and how we function in it has many, many different ways of looking at it. So it's really wise to stay centered in yourself, as Nina says, to, to be self-aware. Slow down. Take it easy. And when you do that, your awareness field increases. And when your awareness field increases, you're likely to take it easy and make fewer mistakes, thus creating less conflict. And on that note of less conflict, thank you ever so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The Voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVMFM on Wall Street in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. And Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI in Taos, New Mexico. If you would like to reach me, nave at jamesnave.com. That's a good place to reach out. I would love to hear from you. And I'd like to remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you're a writer or if you're thinking about becoming a writer or writing, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to go to start that process. Oh yeah, and one more thing. Every Saturday morning, 
we offer a free workshop on Zoom. So if you are interested in being invited to join our free workshop, nave at jamesnave.com, send me an email and I'll be happy to send you the information on how you can join us. So we have arrived at the end of our time together. Like I said, thanks so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. And please do come back again sometime very soon. Till then, maybe if we're lucky, we'll catch each other on that turnaround somewhere down the line. <laughs>